The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. The title of tonight's Bible study is Truth Over Temptation. Truth Over Temptation. It was a little over a year ago when I walked into our house. Wanda and I live in a two-story condominium. I walk into the house and she gave me the usual greeting, welcome home, how are you? Uh, Danny. No, she don't call me Danny. She calls me Dan. And then she let me know, I signed you up for a class. Girl, you signed me up for a class. What kind of? She goes, well, it's on Saturday mornings at, at, at 9 a.m. And I'm doing, I'm doing the, the, you know, the calculations in my mind. What is this going to mean for me? I go, how long is this class? You go, about eight to nine weeks. I said, well, what is this class all about? She goes, well, it's called pickleball. Well, immediately you had me with food, right? I go, I like pickles. I like dill pickles, you know? And she goes, yeah, it's pickleball, and uh, it's supposed to be good for you. And I said, well, this is where the husband says the right things, 48 years of marriage, right? I go, you know, dear, if it allows me to be with you, some, something to do with you, well, I'm just happy to do it. She goes, well, you got to go out and buy some uh, pickleball paddles. I go, well, where do you do that? Is there a pickleball store? And she goes, well, no, you can find them here and there. And so we got our paddles and... You know, people say, Dan, you really play pickleball. I go, yeah, I, can, I got a pulled calf muscle to prove it. I can prove to you the devotion that I have for this sport. And one of the things that happens in this game, which is if tennis, if tennis were to marry ping pong, you know, if they were to get together and, and, and get married and they had a child, it would be pickleball. And so there are some similarities. And and, and one of the things that happens is, is, the, is your opponents, and we play uh, in teams, Wanda and I uh, play in teams, usually together. And, well, it can try a marriage a little bit, but nevertheless, we survived 48 years. It's when the ball comes and hits on the line, the, the people on this side of the net, this side of the net, will call whether that ball is in or out. The ball hits here. If it's in, then obviously you need to play it. If it's out, then you... Well, basically what I do is I just raise a finger like I'm pointing to Jesus, asking for his grace and his mercy, and I say, that's out. The thing is, the other team is not allowed to challenge your call. The reason I bring that up is because it creates a tension in Danny the pastor, which nobody... A lot of people don't know that it's Danny the pastor, so I have my compression socks up to here, my fancy little shoes. Compression socks, yeah, because of the calf that was pulled and talks to me from time to time. And the ball hits, I have this tension. If I call it, if I call it out, there's a good chance it's going to be my point, depending where we're at in the game. But if I call it in and don't play it, well, then that can go against me. And tonight's Bible study is designed to create tension in you. In the same way that I have to make this call, you and I have to make calls in our lives when it comes to sin. That there are times when, when what might be sin for me might not be sin for you. And so then sin isn't a matter of consensus or what uh, another brother or sister in Christ might say. 
It certainly isn't something that we go to the culture to determine. And it, it usually isn't something that's wise to sit there and go, well, you know, it's, it's really okay because, no, Jesus tonight with his words wants to bring tension into your life. He wants you to struggle. He wants you to, to, to think about it. Maybe, possibly, if you, if you have friends that you can, he wants you to talk with them about it. He wants to sift you to sift through the teaching so the teaching might sift through you, if you know what I mean. In the Ramos household, when I was young, my dad used to sift me without looking at me. He could, without touching me, he could look at me, say something like, Junior, I need to talk to you. Trust me. I could feel the scales of justice being balanced out in that moment. So tonight we're going to talk about truth over temptation from Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, verses 43 through 50. In some of our Bibles, there's a couple of verses missing. We'll talk about that in a minute. Verses 44 and 46. Not everybody's Bible, but my Bible. I don't know if they were trying to save ink or whatever, but but there's a reason for that. We'll talk about that when we get there. I want to go ahead and read to you. I'm going to include verse 42, even though we covered it last week. All this section is in red, telling us that Jesus is speaking to you tonight. He's obviously speaking to the disciples, the apostles. As we've noted several times on Wednesday night, he's preparing to go to the cross. And so he's preparing his disciples for all that's about to happen. And he says in verse 42, again, Mark 9, Whoever causes one of these little ones, I want you to think of a a young believer. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe or trust in me to sin or to stumble, it would be better for him, that's the individual that brings temptation to this little one, be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. The great millstone was was this round uh, stone chiseled stone with a hole in the middle with a pole and it would be tied to a donkey and he would walk around in a circle and they would put grain underneath it and it would crush it. Verse 43, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better to enter into life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. Now, verse 45, we don't have verse 44. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye rather than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where there is worm, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, For everyone everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. When I became a Christian in 1978, I had been raised in a construction family. I knew nothing else. In my neighborhood, my dad came home from work in a pickup. When he came home from work, he slid out of the truck. Trust me, at all stages of life, he worked very, very hard. He was, his, his clothing was physically dirty. 
I remember him coming up to the porch and, and, and us kids coming around him. And, and what we would do is, because he wore these high boots with the laces, is we would sit down in front of him and we would undo the laces. We would pull back, pull back the, the boots and then we would slip them off. And always remember seeing that his white socks were stained with the leather from the perspiration. So much so that when I was 18 years old, I followed him into construction. And, and, and I remember after, at the age of 22 becoming a Christian. And for me, that the transformation, it's not this way for everyone. I'm not saying it's got to be this way for you. But the transformation that took place at my conversion was that Danny was one way this day, and the next day he was very, very different. Danny spoke or talked or used words this day. The next day, those words completely stopped coming out of Danny's mouth. There was a transformation that was real. You know, with the construction guys, a big part of their language, a big part of their language is very, very colorful. I'm saying that because we're in church. And for me, it was gone in a moment. The transformation of my heart didn't mean that I was sinless, but I became hypersensitive to the way I spoke. Another thing that changed was when the guys were together, they would talk about certain things. They noticed that I would pull away and turn to walk, walk away. And they, and they would call to me, hey, Ramos, you used to participate in, the, they didn't talk like that, you used to engage in these conversations with us. Do you now think you're better than us? But there was something inside of me that sensed that this isn't good for me. I wasn't in any way judging them or condemning them, but I just knew that I didn't want to fall back into those conversations that were not right. Perhaps the biggest thing that happened to me was that because I come from a family with alcoholism and addiction, was that night I stopped using any drugs or consuming any alcohol. That's for me. That was my temptation. That was my weakness. And it was generational. My father and my grandfather, many of my uncles, because of diabetes, uh, suffered from, from, from that disease. And so in one night, I changed. And in one night, I went into my kitchen and I took all the adult beverages and I took all of the drugs and all of the magazines. And I remember going over to the trash can and throwing them away. Why? Because I recognized that I was weak. And in order for me to have them around my house meant that at some point in time, in a moment of weakness, I might give in to them. And I had been so challenged by Jesus, not because he told me not to do these things, but because I no longer had a desire to do these things. I want you to see tonight that Jesus's instruction on temptation is marked by extreme language. And Danny Ramos is extreme. I am extreme when it comes to certain things. Jesus' warning is to eliminate anything from our lives that may possibly cause us to sin. I, I, am always, I am always challenged by God's words to Cain regarding, his, regarding Cain's attitude and heart about his brother's offering that was accepted by God and his offering that was not. 
And it's as though God engages him. And this is after the fall, the curses upon the land. And yet they instinctively know that they're to offer something to God. And, and again, one is accepted, Abel's is accepted, and Cain's is not. And something happens in Cain. It's in him. And God uses this terminology that I think is so important for us to consider. He said, you need to be careful. My word's not God's. You need to be careful because sin is crouching at the door. The terminology to me speaks of sin being like a predator. Like, like sin being something that you have to watch and, and you have to be careful. And I think, be careful of it. And I think that's what Jesus is challenging us with tonight. Be careful. However, when we sin, it's likely that we do so because of the weakness of our will. Not because we necessarily want to sin, but many times the weakness or the breakdown, if you, if you will, happens within us. I believe that sin promises to satisfy you. That's why we do the mental gymnastics. That's why, that's, why we, that's why we see how close we can come sometimes to sin. Rather than, Wanda and I go to the zoo regularly, rather than maintaining a safe distance from the lion, the tiger, and the bear, oh my, we snuggle up close to it because we don't realize that it is dangerous. Sin promises to satisfy your longing for satisfaction. Sin promises to satisfy your longing for pleasure. And you will receive pleasure from it. And it also, sin promises to make you happy. One of the things I want you to see tonight is that God gives us power to resist sin. He doesn't ask us to do something we cannot do. But not only has he given us a new nature, that when temptation comes, we can ask him for power and he will give us power to resist and to say no to sin. In my humble opinion, it's best to be vigilant in guarding our hearts and not passive. In James chapter 4, verse 7, these words have always been interesting to me when James says, you submit yourself to God, resist the devil, listen to this, you resist the devil, submit yourself to God, and he will flee, or he will run from you. The idea of submitting means that we are to yield to God. We are to, Ephesians 5.18, be ye filled with the Holy Spirit. Then Paul also himself speaks of trusting in Jesus' victory over death in Romans chapter 6. We are to look to Jesus' win at the cross, his victory at the cross, and not our failure. Let me say that again. When it comes to temptation, you and I are to look to Jesus and the victory that he worked upon the cross and not our failures. This should be on the screen, Romans 6, verses 10 and 11. For the death he died, Jesus died, he died to sin once for all. It talks about the sufficiency and the complete, listen, the complete work of the cross is that he died once and for all. He doesn't have to die again and again and again. Going on with the verse 10. But the life he gives, he lives to God. Because this is true, verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin. You must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is our posture. 
If you were here last week, you remember Jesus' warning. I read it at the beginning of our, of our section here. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea, into the depths of the sea. I want you to think, when you hear those words, I want you to think of judgment that is certain. Judgment that will certainly happen for those who tempt young immature young believers. This week's a little different, though. We're going to consider the drastic measures needed to deal with temptation in our lives. One of the issues is, and it has always been this way, is that man's nature tends to trust in himself, tends to trust in himself rather than to trust in God. Apart from inward weakness, we must also think about outward opposition. My friends, we are engulfed. Whether you realize it or not, we are engulfed by spiritual beings. Some of them are good. Some of them are bad. Some of them are holy. And some of them are evil. Those that are bad and evil hate God, and they hate you and me. Their goal is to derail our lives. It's important to know that as you sit here tonight or as you watch online, that not every thought you have is your thought. Not every thought that comes into your mind. I know sometimes it's hard to distinguish. But you remember from Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says that the shield of faith, our faith is in Jesus, not in ourselves. Our faith is in what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. That the shield of faith extinguishes the flaming arrows of the wicked one. So then as we sit and we think not every thought is our thought, nor do we have to entertain these thoughts. As a matter of fact, the kingdom of darkness continually assaults your mind with lies. That's why it's so important to know the scriptures. That's why it's so important to lean and depend upon the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He will help us understand truth from lies. I also believe that's why it's important to fellowship or to be around other, other believers. I know the day in which we live, or because of certain circumstances, we can't always be around other Christians. But if and when we can, it has a purifying effect on our lives. The best way to deal with temptation is to follow Jesus' example. You remember that when he was tested, 40 days in the wilderness without eating, 40 days in the wilderness alone, 40 days in the wilderness when all he had to hold on to were the words of the Father when he was baptized. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And 40 days, my friends, I believe, of being tempted by the devil. He was personally tempted by the devil. And in his weakened state, he quotes scripture. I believe every time, but we are given the example of him quoting it three times. When he was tested to satisfy his hunger by using divine power, Jesus spoke truth in the face of temptation. Again, as I just said a minute ago, this is our example. To know the scriptures, to quote the scripture in the face of temptation. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, it should be on the screen as well, Jesus answered, this is he's answering to the devil. He's answering to the devil's Temptation to turn the rocks, and there were many, into loaves of bread. He says, it is written. When he says it is written, it's equivalent, equivalent to saying, this is God's word on the matter. 
Am I hungry? Absolutely. Would I love to eat some bread right now? Absolutely. After 40 days of not eating, am I near death? Absolutely. But instead of trusting in myself, I am choosing to trust in God's word. And you know the word. Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. So in our time together, Jesus uses two figures of speech. First is a metaphor. That is, uh, uh, when he uses the word hand, in verse 43, it speaks of what we do. It's a metaphor. It's, a, it's a, again, a figure of speech. In verse 45, foot refers to where we go. The hand, what we do. The foot, where we choose to go. And then in verse 47, the eye describes what we see. These are things we have control over. What we do with our hand. So I'll say in a couple of minutes, what we do outwardly is an expression of what exists inwardly, but what I choose to do with my hand. Jesus is telling me, I can say yes or I can say no. I'm not under the power, the sway necessarily of every desire that I experience or everything I want to do, of the foot, where I choose to go, where I'm, where, who I'm going to be with. Who am I going to be with? And what has been my track record when I'm with this group or when I'm with this individual? Jesus is saying, you don't have to go with them if you see that you're vulnerable to temptation when you're with them or when the two of you are alone. And then Jesus speaks of the eye, right? Remember the woman in the garden? Eve looks at the fruit. She sees its beauty. She sees that it offers something to her. Again, metaphor. The eye describes what we see. The idea that Jesus wants to share with us tonight is that we have control over our lives. You and I can say no to temptation. But the power to say no to to temptation is when we lean on God. I want you to listen to a quote by Neil T. Anderson. He He writes many books. One that I read was called The Bondage Breaker that deals with spiritual warfare deals with spiritual warfare within the context of the church. He was a pastor, and then he was a a teacher, a professor at Biola University. And, And over and over again, he would share these stories of Christians who, because they didn't understand the nature of temptation, they didn't understand that they were in a war, had given themselves over to the influence of the demonic. I want you to, again, the name of his book is The Bondage Breaker. But this is a quote. It should be on the screen. The essence or the core of temptation is the invitation to live life independently of God. The essence of temptation is the invitation to live life, to live independently of God. The second figure of speech that Jesus uses is hyperbole, or we might say an exaggeration. If you know a fisherman, you know hyperbole well. The fish was, you know, and each time the story is shared, it gets bigger and bigger. It's important to know that hyperbole is not meant to be taken literally. In verse 43 and 45, the hand and the foot, Jesus says, of them, if they cause you to stumble or to sin, he says, cut it off. To cut it off. Or in verse 47 of the eye, he says, tear it out or remove it. Nowhere is mutilation or amputation suggested. Simply, we are to take whatever measures needed to separate ourselves from the source of temptation. You know, 
One of the things I greatly value, I was talking about, you know, being in fellowship with other Christians is that there's about four pastors, uh, pastors from other churches, and some in Orange County and some in San Diego County, that I meet with uh, about on the average of once a month. We do better sometimes than others, depending on their schedules. And one of the things that we do is that we have these honest conversations. They likely couldn't have these conversations with the members of their church. They could feel more comfortable sharing it with a man. They feel more comfortable sharing it with men who, who have similar responsibilities and, 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 and challenges in their churches or maybe in their families. And one of the things that I've seen that is the most powerful, especially since the pandemic, is when we get together and share our hearts. And then we pray for each other. When we share our hearts, it's as though as what's in here comes out and is placed on the table. Because there is an element, a degree of trust that's been developed over years. I've known some of these men for decades for decades. And that's why one of the things that I, I believe about the church is that you, there are things you can't share with anybody or everybody, but there are those individuals who love you. And because they love you, you can be honest with them. And I think this takes the teeth, one of some teeth anyways, maybe a couple of, of the big upfront teeth out of the devil's mouth, is when we confess our sins one to another. When we step out of the shadows and into the light. When we move in the direction of being, of being vulnerable. I'm not saying again, I'm not saying you can do this with anybody, but if you have these individuals in your life, I believe that it will help you in the struggle with sin. But I'm gonna tell you something tonight that I'm sure won't surprise you, I sin. I sin. And in all honesty, I can feel discouraged when I sin. I can feel like I should be beyond this by now. I can also feel defeated when I sin. But I need you to know one thing, that eventually in time after I sin, it drives me to the cross. Whether it's in my devotional life or as I work around here, I'll, st I'll sit over here in this dark sanctuary sometimes and I'll say, uh, Jesus, I have a bad attitude right now, or I'm thinking the worst of somebody right now. I know this doesn't happen to any of you. I'm glad you came to hear me. I'm feeling better already. But I want you to listen to Paul again from, again, the book of Romans. We're in chapter 7 and verse eight, uh, uh, 19 and 20. He says, this is his personal struggle. I'm thankful that Paul is as transparent as, as we need to be. He says, for I do, I do not do the good I want that is, the things that I want to do, those aren't the things that I do. That's a good time for somebody to say amen. amen. Thank you. Thank you. Make me, you helped a brother up here, right? But what does he say? He says, the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Guys, when you can talk like this, you're not doing church anymore. You're being real. And I believe one of the reasons that he shares his struggle with the Romans is because, not that he necessarily 
completely understood the scope that this letter would be scripture. I believe that he understood that it was inspired, but all those that would benefit is that this is our battle. We want to do good. We desire to be, to do good, but we also do evil, the evil we don't want to do. Verse 20, he goes on to say, now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Do you hear that? Sin that dwells within me. Let me say it another word. Wait. Sin that is crouched at the door. My sister lives in Valley Center. And she tells me, you know, Daniel, there's certain times of the year that the rattlesnakes come. She's up in the, she's up in the you know, remote, rural and she goes, they had, at the time they had dogs. And she goes, we, we, we really have to be careful. We hear the dogs barking. We know that they've cornered a rattlesnake. And so we got to go running. I mean, tell you what. Me and Indiana Jones, we don't like snakes. I don't even like snakes in my sister's yard and Valley Center. And I live in Poway. Sin is like a snake. A venomous snake that follows us and tempts us. And in a moment of weakness or Danny can willfully sin, it is positioned to strike. If you hear, hear those rattles, man, something just, you know, something just like, get out of here now, Ramos. Listen, but we play with sin. We play with it. We play with temptation. We put ourselves in, in situations where we're vulnerable to sin. Remember, I was riding with some of the guys we were working at up, in, up south of San Clemente at the nuclear plant, and they knew I'd become a Christian. They mostly knew i become a Christian because we would share rides. So like one week, Al would drive, another week, uh, another guy's named Danny. Danny would drive, and then the, the third week, Danny Ramos would drive. I love these guys so much, I put on Christian radio. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. But then this event happened with one of our superintendents was, being, was leaving the nuclear plant at San Onofre, and he was going out to Palo Verde out in Arizona. They were starting, uh, they were building another nuclear plant out there. And so the guys told me, you know, Danny, let's go up to San Clemente. We're going to have a couple of beers, and George is going to be gone. And I had such a conviction because of my weakness and propensity to drink that I sat in the truck the whole time that they were in. And, and, and there was nothing wrong. They didn't do anything wrong. The reason I stayed in the truck was because I knew that if I was around alcohol, my weakness, if I knew if I was around the guys, I knew if I was shooting pool, I knew if I was hearing the stories, that I would be stumbled. That I would be stumbled. That the weakness was in me. That I had seen relative after relative after relative. That I had seen in my own life 
that I had sit from the time, time I was 18 years old, that I sat at a bar and listened to men blame their wives, their former wives, their supervisors for everything bad that happened in their life. And even as an 18-year-old kid sucking on a beer, I had the mentality in my mind going, buddy, the problem, I didn't say this, buddy, the problem isn't your ex-wife, it isn't your wife, it isn't your neighbor, and it isn't your supervisor. The problem is in you. I want to do what's right, but I don't. Paul says, but sin that dwells in me. Now, there are theologians that have different theories on whether Paul was a believer or not. I believe that these words came from a believer. If not, I'm in big trouble because they describe my life to a T. I want you to see a, another enemy. That is, we are engulfed with temptation from the enemy. Remember Jesus' great prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Jesus, lead me not into temptation, but you deliver me from evil. Some Bibles say, the evil one. So we see another enemy besides the evil one, sometimes called the sinful nature. So Paul's referring to here in Romans 7. He goes on to say that sin inhabits his physical body that there is a battle from within. In Galatians, he says, the spirit warreth after the flesh and the flesh after the spirit. And that is the life of a Christian. This war that goes on from within. When we yield to its influence, that is when we sin, we are encouraged, 1 John 1, 9, to confess our sin and that Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. We are to receive forgiveness, not condemnation. Again, more tension. I feel bad because of the way I talked to my wife or what I said to my wife. When everything inside of me is saying, Ramos, be quiet, be quiet, be quiet, and I don't listen to myself, and I speak, and I see, say those words, and I see pain in her face, and I know that I've stepped over the line, and I disappear into the garage, and I feel bad, and I say, Jesus, forgive me, and he does. And then I go to her and I say, you know, I was out of line. I was wrong. Again. And again and again and again. And yet we are forgiven and not condemned. I don't know about you, but I long for the day when my sinful nature is gone. This is the gospel-centered life. This is a Christian life. In the same way we look to Christ for salvation from sin's penalty. That is the same way we look to the cross for, for, for sin's pe penalty. We also look to Jesus for salvation from sin's power. Being saved from sin's penalty is instantaneous. That's justification. Being rescued from sin's power is a process. It's called sanctification. When we see the eye, the hand, the foot, and the eye... These are actions that are related to our will. In Luke chapter 6, verse 45, and this should be on the screen as well, where Luke says, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. Now listen to these words. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So let's look at our reading here and we'll point out a couple of things. 
So first we see resisting the temptation to sin in verses 43, 45, 47, and 48 requires confrontation. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Remove it. It's better to enter into life crippled and with two hands to go into hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot this time causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Again, some of your Bibles will not have verses 44 and 46 because it is a, uh, it's, it's a repeat of verse 48. I don't know about you, but if given a choice... For the most part, I would avoid confrontation, and yet Jesus says, confront sin. Confrontation for me is not pleasant. I feel vulnerable to certain emotions. But Jesus is saying that we are to take a stand when it comes to temptation. The use of the words, your, your hand, your foot, your eyes, mean that I am responsible. I am responsible, not anybody else. I, I, I can't blame my dad or my mom or my friends or my spouse for my sin. That I am to take responsibility. Your hand, your foot, your eye. Also, the use of body parts encompasses the totality of life. Everything that you do, he's covering with these words. Dealing with sin must be device, decisive and complete leaving no, no stone unturned. So again, the hand speaks to actions that carry out the desires of the flesh. To cut it off means removing anything and anyone, anything and anyone, anything and anyone, anything and anyone, that when you notice that you're around them, you yield to sin. You know, when I worked with high school students, this was hard. I don't know if you know anything about young people. They're extremely loyal to their friends. And I said, you know, I love that you care about your friends, but my question to you is, are you influencing them for good or are they influencing you for evil? Is that relationship influencing you to be, to be sinful or is that relationship influencing you? To be godly. That's hard. This is hard. There's tension. Where's the ball? Did the ball hit on the line? Did the ball hit outside the line? Did the ball hit home? The call is yours. Jesus reminds us that there are things in this life worth denying so that we might, in verse 47, enter the kingdom of God. I want to talk about this a little bit because Jesus says, he talks about this idea or this concept, this place called hell. The reason that's important to know is because he's speaking to men who are saved. He's speaking to men who are born again or will be shortly. Christians are forgiven. We're heaven bound. So this is a tough question. Again, tension. Remember I said his words are intended to make us uncomfortable. Scripture requires us to wrestle with the passage because it's in the tension that we learn. It's in the struggle that we learn this truth. 
The apostles are being taught a very different way of dealing with sin. Previously, the law guided them. They trusted in human effort to obey, but now the Spirit would transform their natures, would give them strength to resist the lure of sin. In fact, what the the hand, the foot, and the eye do is carry out the desire of the heart. And it is when the coming of the Spirit, when the Spirit comes into your life, He changes the heart. If you follow the Spirit, your heart will continue to change. And if your heart continues to change, oh, this is so important to know, then your behavior and your attitude will change. The use of hell or eternal suffering as a deterrent speaks to how much more then should we resist temptation. David Guzik, this quote should also be on the screen, writes, the message of Jesus was clear. Knowing how terrible hell is, right, by description, it is worth any sacrifice to avoid, again, motivation to turn from sin. The word hell is a, is a, a synonym, for, synonym, I'm sorry, for the Greek word Gehenna, which in the, he, which in the Hebrew was the Valley of Hinnon. It was a literal place. It was just south of Jerusalem. Historically, this is where rebellious kings would, would, would have human sacrifice. It was known as the, the valley of the drums. And the reason that they would, they would pound the drums was to, to quiet out the, the, the people that were dying as they screamed. In, in time, because of the evil that was wrought there, it would be turned into a trash dump where garbage was burned. And the fire was known to never burn out. So Jesus is using terminology that was associated with some place, literally. This is also where they would discard dead animals in the bodies of criminals. The stench of burning garbage, rotting flesh, the fire that never extinguished, came to be known as the place of the damned. We see it as an earthly counterpart with a spiritual reality. That when we think of hell now, we think of a lake of fire. In Revelation 20, verses 14 and 15, John says in a victorious note, then death, capitalized, and Hades, or the place of the dead, were thrown into the lake of fire. For us, this is hell. John goes on to say this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Of fire. But I want you to remember this. When it comes to temptations, my friend, we're almost done. Brian Chappell says, this quote should also be on the screen, God promises that our temptation is never stronger than he is. God provides his solemn word and sovereign promise that he will never allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able to resist. And yet our part is to turn to Jesus and to resist temptation. So again, verse 45, the foot speaks to where we choose to go, that we are to avoid places associated with sinful behavior. Verse 47, the eye means that we eliminate temptation that enters through our minds, enters our minds through the eye gate. And there are so many representations of what that means. But I think of Job's words regarding visual temptation in Job 31, verse 1. And I think the beauty of Job is is that you get towards the end of the book. There's so much additional wisdom having gone through the trial. 
When he says to his accusers, I have made a covenant or an agreement with my eyes, how then could I gaze at a young woman? He says, I have made an agreement with my eyes to not offend God, to not even look at a young woman. We conclude with verses 49 and 50. Resisting temptation to sin requires sacrifice. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Just a couple of closing thoughts here. Jesus' disciples understood the significance of salt as related to Israel's sacrifices. And the sacrifices, again, they were placed upon an altar. The altar was where the sacrifice, whether it was an animal sacrifice or a grain sacrifice, would be placed upon the altar. It would be sprinkled with salt. And then the fires would consume it. Think about this. The The salt reminded Israel that the sacrifice that was being offered was a part of God's enduring covenant with them as a people. Salt also had a monetary value in Jesus' day, so then it represented another way that sacrifice was a cost to worshiper. It's interesting to note that the only way salt lost its saltiness was if it came in contact with something that contaminated it. In Jesus' day, gypsum would be mixed with salt and it would lose its saltiness, but salt, listen, salt by itself would always remain salty. And so we close with this idea. The sacrifice of saying no to sin and no to temptation is not only a form of obedience, my friends, it is a form of worship. It is a form of worship. That when you say no, when you say yes to God, that you are worshiping him. Romans chapter 12 Paul says, For I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of Christ, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And some versions say, which is your reasonable service. And then he says this, he says this, this, and then we'll close out with worship. I see we went a little late. I'm sorry. He says, and do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to this world. Do not be squeezed into the mold or the shape of thinking the way this world thinks. Do not allow yourself to be conformed into the behavior of a world that is hostile and against God. Instead, allow your life to be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. My friends tonight, We worship God in our obedience. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.